Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Welcome to this week's episode of the TLS podcast. I'm Thiela Narduzzi, an editor at the TLS, and as ever, our arts editor Lucy Dallas is here too. Hello, how are you doing? As ever, I hope that's not. I hope that's not a tinge, a tinge of weariness. As ever, as ever, Lucy's no, no. Here. <laughs> <laughs> as is the case every single week, Lucy Dallas is here too. <laughs> not at all. Um, what news? What news? Any news? Not world news because I've, I've definitely had enough of that. Uh, no, I'm not going to give you world news. Would you like any potato-based news? Always. Well, uh, I've got my first earlies in. Se- second earlies not yet, because uh, it's been very, very wet. Um, but, um, yeah, here in the south, the, the ground is now warm enough, I, I figure, for potatoes. In fact, I may even be a little bit tardy on it. Hmm. That's it. That's the most exciting thing that's happened to me. Well, I, on the other hand, have been, um, I've been germinating. Good. <laughs> I've been, <laughs> I've, I've planted You can get an some... ointment for that, Thea. <laughs> I've planted some uh, uh, evening primrose. Oh, nice. Uh, straight into the ground because I was told it was mild enough for that now. I'm sure, I'm sure it will go wrong. Nothing will happen. It... Do you know the horrible old gardener's test? No, what's that? Well, the, the, the one that apparently they used to do, that it, it might just be a gardener's wind-up, is that you're supposed to drop your pants and put your bum on the soil. <laughs> and if it doesn't feel, like if it feels bearable, if you don't like shriek and have to get up again, then it's warm enough for planting. But, you know, you can just use your hand. I mean, I just I just use my hand. I'm just My saying. garden's quite overlooked. <laughs> okay. I mean, I'm not, I'm not um, advocating it. I'm just passing it on. Okay. Right. Um don't really know how to come out of out of, of that. Um, <laughs> so coming up on this week's show, uh, Dungeons and Dragons, the famous role-playing game full of monsters and wizards, has a literary soul. The TLS's poetry editor and D&D player, Camille Ralphs, will tell us more. And libraries under threat, again, arts criticism ignored again, racism in the press ignored again. Unica Zern gets her time in the sun and the three greatest novels of the 21st century so far. We will catch up with this week's NB column. But first, to Vivian Gornick, an American writer of essays that, as our critic Claire Loudon puts it this week, demonstrates a rare ability to stand back and look at the world in which she finds herself and then set it down calmly on paper. She makes it look easy, although, of course, most of us know it really isn't. And luckily for us, Claire points out she has been doing this for more than half a century. Under review this week is a new retrospective collection of Gornick's essays, Taking a Long Look, which finds a writer flitting between literary criticism, political participation, and a more introspective mode, always with an eye for the telling detail. Claire Loudon is on the line now to tell us more. Hello, Claire. Thanks for coming on. Hi, it's lovely to be here. Um, You begin your review with a brief vignette of the author's mother in 1920, uh, which is given in one of the essays. So what do we see there? And a slightly bigger question uh, how does it 
kind of set us up for the experience of reading Gornick? Um, I think that what that particular essay, which is a lovely meditation on the way we communicate with each other, shows you is really Gornick's particular gaze in microcosm. She's there in the early 20th century, um, remembering this very unusual relationship that her mother had with um, an older married boss at the um, industrial bakery that she worked at in, in New York. And this lonely older guy um, who was unhappy in his own marriage would write long letters to her mother each night and post them at midnight. And her mother would receive them before she went into work the next day at eight o'clock, because at that point in time, there were five mail deliveries a day in New York. And Gornick starts there and she teases out this, this lovely meditation, the world in which we find ourselves has ineluctably changed over the decades since this point in time. She talks about the meditative quality of the letters this guy was writing. He was talking about what he could see as he looked out the window, talking about um, one of his children who'd been sick that day, a play he'd seen at the theatre. And obviously the letters are a soliloquy. He, he, he doesn't have anyone to respond to him so he can kind of go off at a tangent and it doesn't seem sort of capricious and Gornick herself um, grows up she's 85 now so she grows up um, in the sort of 30s and 40s and she therefore also grew up with the letter as a tool of communication and and reminisces in this essay very fondly about writing to friends all over the world in her late teens and early 20s as as they went off traveling and it being a, a sort of part of your friendship that you would have these soliloquies built into the friendship in the form of letters and then by the time she's writing the essay which is in the sort of 70s and 80s the letters dropped away in favour of of the telephone which is a totally different mode of communication and she rather than sort of crudely wishing for the letter back or arguing that the telephone is much better she sort of says these two things have got equal and interesting merit the the communication that's produced with a letter is very different from the the back and forth of a telephone call but when she now sits down to write a letter she notices she kind of can't do it anymore she's not in that practice the culture itself doesn't support letter writing so even though she might like to write a letter it's not really available to her in the way that it was and so what you've done I mean what you've given us a really clear sense of here is how almost sort of stroke by stroke, you describe it as, as almost like watching someone paint. There's a, there's a stroke here and a stroke there, something very small that just kind of builds over time into a much, it just, you just watch this picture open out and spread out before you and, and you've gone from a young mother's living room or, or wherever it is where she's reading these letters to these much, much bigger ruminations. Yeah, absolutely. She's very good at starting with something tiny, a conversation on a bus, a trip to the hairdressers and just expanding into something really broad brush and something that's unafraid to dive between the 19th century and the 20th century, between the 30s and the 70s. Um, She'll start a critical essay with a sentence like the generation of Jewish American writers that was born in the middle of the First World War and came of age in the 30s was destined in the 1950s and 60s to revolutionise American literary culture. And that's really her approach as a critic. It's um, it's obviously um, much easier to simply stick to the text in hand um, and to look at what it's doing on the page right now. And Gornick is always looking at the book in hand and asking where's it come from what's its heritage and she's unafraid to make those those big general statements that are actually fantastic as a reader when you're new to a particular writer. I wonder is it even quite an old-fashioned idea now or maybe it's that we don't have many in Britain is the idea of being a critic who writes essays and that's what you do I, w- I was I, I'm not sure if I can think of people who who only do that let's say these days in Britain whereas in America there are, um, that's still respected as a a craft and art in itself isn't it? I, I was, it's really interesting I was thinking um, Lucy exactly about that who can I think of that's doing this now in the same way I think of mostly I've been American names as you say sort of Janet Malcolm, um, uh, Adam Gopnik, James Wood, bridging America and, uh, and England I know he's I know he's English but he's very much existing now in a kind of American tradition but I mean what about Joanna Biggs mm. in the UK? Um, this collection though um, 
it's reverse chronological, which is an unusual choice, is it? I mean, what what changes do we see as we work our way back from from now to, I suppose it would have been the early 70s? Yeah, well, she actually, in her introduction, um, sort of explains her reasoning for ordering the essays in this way. And she sees a, a break in herself as a younger writer and as an older writer, which I, th- I think is, is probably, from what I've read, broadly true. Um, she feels that when she was younger, she was fundamentally more polemical and that she would approach an essay um, by trying to... Um, she talks about writing that imposes itself on the story when she's a younger essayist and that as she's as she's grown she's um taught herself to value writing that serves the story so going to see what the material has to say rather than having something to say and using the material to say that and I think reading backwards through this collection that's broadly true and the other thing that happens as you as you go further back the essays are always interesting especially because she's lived through I mean most of the 20th century and she's she's a very tight writer and her eye for detail is exceptional but as she's matured as a writer she's clearly able to say a lot more with fewer words and it's that's that's a great pleasure and do we get a general sense across the collection of the sorts of subjects that she's uh, particularly drawn to then I mean is it is it things in disintegration lost worlds or is there something that you would sort of describe as as a Gornickian uh, subject oh that's interesting I think um yeah, she has a very strong sense of the movement of time. So what is contemporary in the 30s very quickly ceases to be contemporary. And she's she's very um, sharp and actually uh, fairly exacting about writers or thinkers who don't move quickly enough with that programme. She really expects the the people that she's reading to be absolutely abreast of, I don't even want to say the zeitgeist, um, that sort of uh, cheapens it slightly, but um, with the best of what's being thought, basically. Um, So, I mean, she's writing about uh, Norman Mailer and misogyny, for example, and she says that I've grown up with Norman Mailer's misogyny and it didn't always seem so dismaying to me as it does now, but it was not always so dismaying. So she's got that sense always whenever she's writing, whatever she's writing about, of the way our values and standards shift over time. I think that's one of her great subjects. Yeah, you call her um, temporally nimble, which is, a, which is a good way of putting it. I was just going to say there's an extract that you quote and uh, that, that she's that, on exactly that point where she says that the writers need to respond to what's happening right now, even if they can't exactly quite clarify it. And if... Um, if a writer is responding, is, is 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 using less than that and not using all their powers to deal with it, she's basically not very interested and thinks it's a bit sentimental and not the real thing. Is that right? Yeah, that's exactly right. That's absolutely her position. And she's got this lovely collection called The End of the Novel of Love, which I actually, I would, as a starting point, I would I would go to that or to her, her wonderful memoir called First Attachments, maybe rather than the big retrospective if you're interested in reading about fiction that is um, which I very much am and she basically the end of the novel of love her her idea here is that in the 19th century the struggle to find a romantic union usually marriage that was fulfilling actually gives shape to legitimate shape to so much of the literature and it becomes an expression of of self-actualization self-fulfillment but moving into the 20th century it becomes less and less interesting as a sort of literary structure um, and she just takes you through writers that aren't necessarily the big guns um, and it, I mean it's reading it's a bit like being at a party um, full of kind of people you kind of sort of feel like you should know but you don't and having this wonderful kind of guide next to you just pointing them all out and giving you fantastic information about about each one of them. And this, this, this idea of the end of, of romantic love as a literary metaphor it's fascinating, really. I mean, and it does it does have a sort of uh, autobiographical note to it, too, doesn't it? Because there's a sort of a nod to her mother's life. And I know she, again, in her own writing about herself, her more introspective writing, she loops back round to that idea, doesn't she, of of love not being there, of, of thinking that growing up, thinking that love would be there and that it would transform you and make you you. And then it's just not the reality. Yeah, I think you're right. I think that's actually one of one of our other great subjects is loneliness and and the death of romantic love as a dream. Um, 
she talks about being told as a little girl in the memoir, which is very funny and sharp. It's lovely. Um, but she talks about being told as a little girl by all of her mother's friends, her mother, kind of like, you know, it doesn't matter what you do. You can work hard, um, go to college. That's fantastic. But the most important thing is that you find a man to love, like that you find that you find love. And it took her a long time to kind of look around and realise that every single one of these women who was promoting romantic love as the absolute pinnacle of um, of achievement and existence, they were all in pretty unhappy marriages as far as she remembers it, um, but still holding it up as the absolute ideal. And she writes, um, again, kind of actually rather heartbreakingly about her first marriage um, when she's very young. She marries an artist and before the marriage, it's a sort of it's a completely typical story that she she looks back on uh, very wryly. A writer and an artist together, they're sort of eating whatever they can to get by. And then, bam, they're married. And it, I mean, I think it's the 50s and overnight she becomes the person who does all of the cooking all of the shopping all of the kind of housekeeping and and it's part of her life's work as articulated and actually through all of these essays to learn how to be by herself and to live by herself and to live with loneliness because she she comes to realize that it's not a question of working out how to never be lonely it's a question of of, of living with something she describes as um a grit that never quite washes away but choosing that and choosing it um, uh, very, very intelligently. And is, is that there from, from the beginning? I mean, you, you mentioned an early essay, I think the earliest essay in, in the collection uh, toward a definition of the female sensibility in which she reviews novels by her contemporaries, all women, I think, and she finds them all wanting. I and mean, what, what are her main criticisms there? Are they in a similar vein or are they different? Yeah, I think... Uh, that early essay is is very much um, well. I say it's early. It's the seventies, so she's been a she's she's already by this point. Um, she must be in her forties, I guess. Um, uh, I don't want to um, put words into her mouth, but yes, I think that um, in that essay towards the definition of the female sensibility, she is worried that the writers she's reviewing, Joan Didion, um, uh, Margaret Drabble, Louise Gold. Uh, are sub- still subscribed to an old ideal of romantic love and they aren't pushing the boundaries or kind of thinking up to the minute at, as she is at that at that point. Um, I read um, a, a thing about the, the romantic love in, in the New Yorker um, that she, I think she was talking to them and they said that she would sit in, in the building with um, one of the ladies in the building, as you say, with all of these women who were telling her that romantic love was a thing and that they themselves were unhappy. And the lady she was with, I think it was called Nettie, would daydream and say, oh, maybe I'll fall and I'm, I'm making this up out of memory, but it was something along the lines of maybe I'll fall over and sprain my ankle and then the, then the, the doctor who tends to me will be tall and handsome and he will, you know, <laughs> rush me off my feet. And um, Vivian Gornick said her she was she was a child at that point and her daydreams were like maybe something massive will happen like a flood or a revolution and people will point to me and say even though she's just a little girl she can give the speech that will rouse everyone together and make them live their <laughs> lives and she realised that her daydreams were like that wasn't about being swept off her feet by by handsome doctors or earning lots of money it was about kind of galvanising people and getting them to to think and live their lives which was amazing I thought yeah that's that's absolutely um that's that's um it's netty I think in in that in that memoir although she also later realizes that the, the speech street daydream is also kind of inherited from the romance of communism because she sort of came from a, a family of, of speechifiers and um ardent communists so that was her dream was to was to kind of rouse a nation and it's yeah. nice how that that incredibly uh grand early vision of herself is then bookended by uh, later there's this charming self-deprecation which I'm sure is obviously connected to these high expectations she had for herself uh, which you quote Claire and you say um, she says I berate myself tremendously for not having written all that I think I should have written and not having written more important books yeah I and I, I obviously don't agree with that I think her, her, her body of work's really lovely and I can't wait to read more of it I, I think yeah lastly the, another of her great subjects is is the power of work and the power of 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 reading and slogging it out at the desk to sort of set you free um a real sense that reading and working is living even if it looks like just sitting at your desk it's it's where the good stuff is which she i mean you you had it already um but she 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 uh she revived it in you. You describe yourself as feeling enlivened and educated after reading this volume which seems like a pretty strong mark of success in a book 
Absolutely. I've come out with a list of writers that I barely knew that I now want to get to know um, and a list of old favourites that I want to reread. Um, and actually, one of the things I can't wait to read is her book that was recently reviewed in the TLS, Unfinished Business, um, which is uh, Gornick on the subject of rereading, which I think must be a wonderful thing because I can imagine that she's very acutely aware of um, her previous readings back in the 70s or the 90s and to have her contrasting that with how she sees them now at the end of her career, looking at something like Sons and Lovers, I think would be fascinating. It's interesting. I mean, she does, I, I really hesitate to use this formulation um, of, of having a moment, but um, Vivian Gornick really does appear to be having an overdue moment of some sort. I mean, there's been a flurry of reissues, the one that you just uh, mentioned, this retrospective now, a, a bunch of books were reissued uh, last year. It's just interesting to think about what it is that is 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 particularly chiming with the present moment. I mean, or I suppose it might also just be, you know, a case of, of steady accumulation. As you say, she's been working for more than more than half a century. But Vivian Gornick just does seem to be big in our in our in our in our mirror now. Yeah, I, I, I agree. And I, I also wonder why, but I'm very glad she is. Well, Claire Loudon, it's been a pleasure talking to you. Thanks for joining us. Thanks, Thea and Lucy and Ben. Bye. Still to come on the show, another library in peril, the three greatest novels of the century thus far, the literary origins of Dungeons and Dragons and more. And if you've enjoyed what we've discussed so far this week, this is a gentle reminder that you can subscribe to this podcast for free wherever you normally get your podcasts and you'll never miss an episode. It's a very difficult novel to discuss without spoilers because more and more of the world is revealed as it um, progresses. It's narrated by a robot who begins, called Clara, who uh, begins the story unsold in a shop and understands basically nothing about the world she lives in. And she's subsequently purchased by a 14-year-old girl called Josie and taken home with her. And she starts to piece together how her world works and it's only as she does that we are able to understand anything about it so if i say anything more than i've already said which i will i'll say a little bit more but i'm already putting the listener in a different position when they come to the novel than i was in when i read it it's difficult to do it well it's easy to be mean about something not well and actually that's one of the disappointing things about this piece that suddenly got so much airtime and you know there's even a question of whether we should be discussing it now because it's probably got enough mileage but I think it's it is important to discuss it because of the things it failed to do and this is it's a, it was a review by Barry Pierce in the Irish Times of Jolly Austin Ghosts and without wishing to launch a hatchet job on a hatchet job it was rubbish <laughs> it was really it wasn't funny it wasn't stylish it told us nothing about the book itself I mean this is one of the things it was a, it was very much about the reviewer I think the words I, me and my appeared on almost every sentence In this autobiography um, you talk about one glaring omission the man that you call the Voldemort of the book can you reveal who this is? Yes um, it's of course, Jose Mourinho, the current manager of Tottenham Hotspur. And the reason that it's a bit curious that Wenger doesn't mention him at all is that he had a great rivalry with him, from which he, he, he came off second best, one has to admit. And it seems that this kind of attitude that he had to Wenger, constantly teasing him and poking the bear, has left a, a lasting impression in that he just doesn't mention him at all. He does mention Alex Ferguson, with whom he had a lot of rivalry, but he calls it in the book a classic rivalry. 
there was a, a recent Observer interview that I saw and they invited lots of well-known figures and also readers to put questions to him. And Mourinho popped up as one of the people asking a question and Mourinho asked this a rather sycophantic question that said, surely a man of your culture and experience would, 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 should be on the board. Wouldn't you like to be on the board? Which is not really much of a question. And then just answered the question very dry and you want to go, is he not going to acknowledge the fact that that was Mourinho? I think that he probably thought that's Mourinho twisting the knife again. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome back to the TLS podcast. Now, before I step wildly out of my comfort zone and into a world of wizards and warlocks, for which I am entirely unequipped, I'm steering us to more familiar ground, to our back page column of literary gossip and gripes, NB, written by our very own mysterious creature, MC. Uh, Shall we start, Lucy, with the more worrisome news first? So what's happening at the, the Victoria and Albert Museum? Well, what seems to be happening is that they are um, cutting 20 of their 30 staff, um, apparently rather suddenly, because they, they've got money problems. I mean, presumably, you know, like everyone, they've, they've got money problems. Uh, and I'm afraid in my ignorance, I hadn't realised how important their library is. The National Art Library, this is. Yeah, and I, I clearly should have known this. It's incredibly important library. With, uh, with There's a list of, of a couple of the things that are there. The book of verse that William Morris made for Georgiana Burne Jones, the notebooks of Leonardo da Vinci, that's not too shabby. Three copies of Shakespeare's first folio, the 15th century book of hours of Marguerite de Foix. It's got extraordinary things in it. Um, and so 20 of the 30 um, jobs will go, I think, particularly at risk of the, of the reading rooms, which um, MC points out were always at full capacity pre-pandemic. And if those are closed and, you know, given that we're talking about 20 out of 30 library staff being laid off, I doubt the 10 remaining staff could manage the space that will only restrict, I suppose, who can and can't be a writer researcher. Some of us work in reading rooms because we don't have suitable places to work elsewhere. Yeah, or those are the only places that you could look at those particular books. You can't check out Shakespeare's first folio and take it home. Mm. So, yeah, so presumably that needs a, a very specialist staff. And 20 out of 30 is a, quite an eye-watering number. I suppose this is something we might see a fair bit over the coming months. So institutions that have, you know, they've been forced online only because of the pandemic. So they've been having to work differently. They've furloughed staff and they may well say, well, you know, we've survived like this uh, now. We've shown that you can survive this way. So this this is the new model. Yes, except, of course, it, it won't really be survival, will it? And I suppose even, even if... 
people were furloughed and things like that. They've just had things, I mean, really sort of simple things like the shop and the cafe have been closed. Mm. I know that you don't go for the shop and the cafe. That's partly what MC is saying, that that, um, there used to be a sort of slogan, that thing that I think Saatchi and Saatchi did, and they called it, what do they call it? Called it an ace calf with quite a nice museum attached. Mm. But if even the ace calf has been closed for a year, then um, then presumably they're, they're very much struggling. But it's not as though libraries all over the country aren't already already struggling. No, exactly, exactly. So it all fit, it fits into that narrative. Um, and it's a very long narrative, as you say, so you can well imagine that the space that was once the library will, um, or reading rooms will be given over to uh, more gift shop space, more a bit a bigger, a bigger Ace Cafe, um, because a library is never going to be as lucrative as those other two things are. I suppose it seems a case of management not really knowing or appreciating what it is that it is the custodian of well I don't know I mean we have I've got no insight into what's behind it but there's certainly a lot of um resistance to it isn't there there's a petition doing the rounds um calling for cuts of the cuts I think yeah an online petition I think 10,000 people have signed it to date so I suppose a quick internet search will find that if uh, if listeners are looking for it um let's move on to happier news the arrival of a new book in Atlas Press's mighty anti-classic series, um, do you want to tell us what's what's going on? What's going on there? Well, they they're they're not publishing the classics. That's what they're doing. <laughs> so they're going for the for Dada and the Surrealists and the Olympians. They've had George Melly, Harry Matthews, Michel Leris, and Aragon. Though Aragon, I don't know what you call him. He was kind of a bit of a thing unto himself. Um, and now, but now they've got um, a German artist and writer and a lady, Unika Zürn. I don't know if that's how you say it. You might know how you say it. That sounds good. That sounded good to me. I have. I'm. I'm at sea in German. The, the main book is called The Man of Jasmine and other texts. And oh, no, there's another one. Sorry, The Man of Jasmine and also The House of Illnesses. And she was herself ill for years, wasn't yeah. she? Yeah. And um, they're short pieces. One of them seems to. Bring one of them. It says brings together the worlds of Captain Ahab and Kurosawa's film Rashomon, which is quite a thing. No, she's. I mean, she sounds like an incredible. I. I don't really know. I don't know. I, sh- I know she was an. Um, I think primarily an anagrammatic poet, and I don't really know her for her writing. So I would definitely like to, to get hold of copies of these. I know her more for her drawing. She's these amazing, beautiful, but also kind of grotesque pen and ink drawings. There was lots of black and white, but then others had. They have these touches of of really watery colours, um, lots of amphibious creatures and 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 fish with with strange face configurations. Ooh. I mean, she she participated in um, the International Surrealist Exhibition in 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 fifty nine, but she was always because she's also connected to a very well known man, uh, the artist Hans Belmer, and that that has always been part of the problem as you know a very common problem to be eclipsed the woman to be eclipsed by her more famous husband but um I was reading an article in the Paris Review about the original manuscript of the novel um of the man of jasmine which is now being reissued uh and when she when she filed the manuscript she she signed it as um the wife of Hans Belmer you know that was sort of her own was that a joke though or she wasn't just no, saying I think, oh I really think, she had to say this I think, is who I, think I am that was, yeah, I think that was I think that was serious. Um, but so no, so it's nice to see her her working her way into the into the sunlight finally. Um, on a different note, then again on a, on a final note, in fact, uh, MC mentions Bridget Brophy's pick in 1962 of the three greatest novels of the 20th century. She was only in 1962, but she was <laughs> clearly feeling she went for quite it. confident. Yeah. So <laughs> she went for it. Um, the Golden Bowl, A la Recherche, and Concerning the Eccentricities of Cardinal Pirelli. And so we have a new parlor game, don't we, Lucy? What's the, what's the challenge? Well, the challenge, I've got to say those, the, I mean, you could do a retrospective one of the three greatest of the 20th century, because I, I don't know how many people would have concerning the eccentricities of Cardinal Pirelli on their it's list. It's a very strong choice, isn't it? It really is. I haven't read it, so I can't say. Um, but the challenge now is, what are the three greatest novels of the 21st century so far? So, so far. Mm. <laughs> Which is, i.e., we're not very far in. Well, someone uh, MC describes as a well-placed literary critic offers 
All for Nothing by Walter Kempowski, The Lesser Bohemians by Ema McBride and The Line of Beauty by Alan Hollinghurst. I think I know who this is. Um, but so we're open for, for listeners' submissions. Tweet them at the TLS and we will pass them on to be considered by MC. But now, Lucy, I am handing over to you for something else entirely. Yes, Thea, and I'm going to need your help with this one. Normally I could start by saying you're in a tavern, but the tavern's closed due to coronavirus, so let's say you're standing outside the tavern, wondering what to do for the next podcast section. Suddenly, a small door you hadn't noticed on the right in the wall creaks open, and you hear a line of beautiful music. Intrigued, you go through and down a large, well-made tunnel for what seems like longer than should be possible, until you reach another door, this time old, mysterious and somehow forbidding. Or is it enticing? You can, however, also hear noises that sound like enemy orcs nearby. What do you want to do? Um, I want to pull Alf the dog close to me. He's, he's with you, is he? I he's in the tunnel. All right, gotcha. <laughs> he's he's, he's okay. always with me. Um, and then I think I probably want to open the door very cautiously because I don't know what's behind. Okay, uh, then uh, make a stealth check. I know you know what that is, Thea. Just make us a stealth check. <laughs> okay, okay. Um, and how did that go? Um, I got 12. Well, that's a lucky escape, um, because that means you will not be attacked by the ferocious, battle-hungry orcs, nor will Alf, and instead you will look up to see shimmering golden words forming above the door as it swings open invitingly, and those words read, Do the next bit on the podcast about Dungeons and Dragons. Are you hooked? (laughs) I'm in, I'm in. (laughs) That is my no doubt terrible but first ever attempt at being a dungeon master and because this week we are inviting everyone into the world of D&D. Our guide here is, you'll be happy to know, not me, but the TLS's poetry editor, Camille Ralphs. When she's not discovering new poems about Superman by Nabokov for the TLS, Camille is a D&D player and she's written as a fascinating piece about D&D and some of the literature that lies behind it. Camille, many thanks for joining us and I'm sorry about the introduction. I don't think you should be sorry at all. I think you should be very proud of that. Um, it was... <laughs> you think I've got a future, a, a lucrative future? I really do. You know, master. we're actually looking for a fifth player and I reckon you could be the one. Um, seriously all right, let's talk afterwards <laughs> i thought that was great it could have gone quite badly wrong though of course if thea had been unfortunate enough to roll a lower number if she had rolled you know two or three she would inevitably have knocked over about 10 dust bins and uh, let all the orcs know that we were here and this podcast would have been over immediately and also bearing in mind that i brought alf into the scenario and that's a whole other yes you did a whole other bag of uh, of disasters yeah. <laughs> that's real chaos energy there. luckily phew she got a 12 <laughs> Um, so Camille, can you start us off um, by walking us through, for the uninitiated, what D&D is and how you play it? Sure. Um, basically, it is a tabletop or online, if you uh, use an online app like Roll20, fantasy role-playing game. There is a dungeon master who, in the example we just heard, was played by Lucy, who designs the world and the basic plot and voices the background narrative and the voices of any non-player characters that you meet. Uh, There are also the player adventurers who are sort of the heart of it. Everyone who plays designs their own character with a different um, career and a different background. And they become an actor basically playing that role throughout the game. And then you all go on these adventures together in the world the dungeon master created and you save villages or pillage them depending on whether you're good or evil and you get loot and have a good time and do you do you decide whether you're good or evil or does your society decide whether you're good or evil you come up with that yourself there are a few different alignments uh, so you can be uh good neutral or evil and you can also be chaotic neutral 
or um, or lawful. So a lawful good character would be very well behaved and always stick to the rules and do the right thing. A chaotic evil character would uh, be kind of like the Joker, I suppose, and just uh, ruin <laughs> things for the fun of it. So, so chaotic good is the fun one, isn't it? Kind of. I think everyone wishes they were chaotic good, but nobody ever really is, uh, <laughs> because if you're, you know, if you're being chaotic, you're always going to end up hurting someone at some point or making mischief. Yes. And um, can you tell us about your character? Are you allowed to tell us about your character, or is it a secret? I can tell you about my character. Um, My character is called Eggs, which is not the most uh, intimidating name anyone's ever come up with. But the thing is, he is a wood gnome. He's about three foot seven uh, and he's a priest. So he's not a particularly threatening guy. He's mostly a healer. He looks out for the other people in the gang because they're always getting into all kinds of shenanigans. um, And that's pretty much his role. So he's a he's a good guy he sounds like lawful good does he he has a bit of a you know dodgy side now and again uh he's probably influenced by the other characters in the group who are a bit more on the chaotic side and they're you know out to get money in some cases or out to get revenge in others Uh, but he does his best with the resources he has i'm glad to hear it Is there an end? How how is there an end to forever? <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm afraid there isn't. And that's um one of the really important and fun things about it. There's no end game, there's no prize for you at the end. It's really just a group of people who like each other and who want to be inventive and creative and a bit silly together, uh, meeting up to do that uh, without any of the uh, constraints and real world expectations that you'd be beset by if you were socializing normally especially now especially in corona times and do you think it has do you think the game has changed or or, or the perception of it's changed or the people who are playing it has changed because because certainly um when it started out it was seen as a very particular a particular type of person wasn't it who was playing it yeah i think it's a bit of both honestly i think when it first started out, um, it was envisioned as this sort of fantasy version of a war game uh, where you would go around saving people or killing them and, and getting lots of loot and um, basically behaving like warriors on an adventure. Uh, but then video games became a thing and it's a lot easier, of course, to do those things on Assassin's Creed and probably a lot more satisfying to do them there than it is to do them in the theatre of the imagination. So I think necessarily it became more of a an acting and improv and comedy thing uh, than a than a fighting thing and um, the kind of people that play it probably changed in line with that a little bit there are all sorts of um, big cultural figures who have admitted or owned up to having been influenced by D in some way like Vin Diesel for instance and um, Jared Way and Stephen Colbert all sorts of types of people play it now um, and the other type of people who now play is also uh, women, mm-hmm. isn't it? And that more women are now involved. And and is that, um, the, I mean, the book that you're reviewing is called Appendix N, The Eldritch Roots of Dungeons and Dragons. Yes. Um, and as you say, in some of the some of the literature, this this was, well, what, what do you tell us about the book? So the book is, um, it's been put together by Peter Bebergal, who has read Gary G. Gygax's original Appendix N list of science fiction and fantasy reading that inspired the game, and also um, David Moldvay's inspirational source material provided to players in the uh, in an early version of the player's handbook. And he has sort of collated a bunch of the stories that were from these lists um, and put them in this book. And there is definitely some material in here that reading it as a woman you you roll your eyes a little bit and oh good there's just one story I'll read you a little bit from it because this one made my eyes roll so far they nearly rolled out of my head and under the desk um so this is uh, by Jack Vance it's called Turgeon of Mere and Turgeon is a sort of uh, minor wizard and he wants to create humanoids in his vats but he's not very good at it he keeps creating sort of slimy lumps of flesh instead so he decides he's going to go and find Pandaloom the expert wizard who will tell him how to do it and he arrives outside Pandaloom's house and as he's approaching the door or um, trying to find exactly where the door is or the entrance is he is attacked by this woman on a horse who tries to swing her sword at him and chop his head off He's very stressed out about this. He says her mouth was tight and white as if in anger and her eyes glowed with a peculiar frenzy. She fought with a crazy violence. Quiet, vixen, said Turgeon, lest I lose patience and stun you. 
Um, she obviously refuses to tell him uh, where the wizard lives and his response to her being so difficult is to think to himself if she were more amiable she would be a creature of remarkable beauty in other words can't calm down dear exactly yeah it turns out that this uh, this woman the angry one was made by the wizard that he's come to see uh, but the wizard wrought her carelessly and she climbed from the vat with a warp in her brain you know, she's just too angry to be enjoyable it seems I'm quite enjoying the woman. She sounds quite... <laughs> you would be angry, wouldn't you? You're crawling, crawling up your <laughs> Yes. Yeah, she's my favourite as well. She's absolutely right to be angry. Uh, but they don't see that, of course. And Turgeon's response to all this is he thinks uh, in true Pygmalion style, he will make a version of this angry woman who's nice. Uh, so he does that. He builds a sister to her and day by day watches the same slender body and the same proud features take form. And she comes out of the vat and she's perfect and she does everything he says. And everyone um, walks off into the sunset together, apart from the angry woman who rides off into the sunset angrily in search oh. of love and beauty. These things that she doesn't have. <laughs> Let that be a lesson to us all. Indeed. Yes. <laughs> That's okay. just an example. <laughs> and, and is the idea that these... These literary texts that have been assembled in um, Appendix N, um, is the idea that they, they, they're sort of like points of reference for you that you might, you might refer to in the narratives that you're bringing into your, your particular game or, or, or what? And if so, is there, has, has there been a kind of a movement to bring out a new appendix, which is new stories? Mm, um, so it's kind of intended as uh, just a list of things that inspired the original version of the game. Uh, it could also be used by a dungeon master if they were looking for ideas for how to design their world and what kind of things to put in it. You could, as a player, borrow things from the characters here. There's a really funny line in um, Lynn Carter's How Sargoth Lay Siege to Zarim, uh, where it talks about Sargoth, the protagonist, lying down on a bed of pillows stuffed with the beards of defeated kings. <laughs> so, so ridiculous and not very hygienic. <laughs> it's great, isn't it? It just puts you immediately in that sort of weird D&D place. Very itchy, very gross, uh, but you're there, you're in the game. Um, and that kind of thing is quite helpful. And lots of sort of item resources as well, weird swords and things like that that you could uh, bring into the game. So, and is it really, it, it, so in this sense, is it really about storytelling? It's about collective improvised storytelling? It definitely completely is. I've actually started to sort of see it as a, a version of a paracosm. Um, I suppose I should give a definition of that, like the kind of um, yes, please. <laughs> big, deep, imagined world that the Bronte siblings had, for instance, with their, um, their imagined gondol. Um, and we move through this world and we remember everything that happens in it. We often talk to each other and say, hey, do you remember when you blew up that orc? What a mad thing to say to your friend. <laughs> Uh, but we do it um, and you know we don't just rely on the existing literature because we're all quite creative people in my D&D group we find ourselves writing prayers and sea shanties and riddles and that kind of thing so it really has become uh, very much a, a sort of novel an expansive novel that we've made together. Mm. And because I, I read a description that said that uh, if if you were the dungeon master I was hastily reading up on this um, for my my um, amazing debut there at the beginning, that if you were creating a world, it, it would be like creating a play outline. So you're not writing people's lines because it's crucial that 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 the characters express themselves and have agency and do things. But you just you might just be molding the way it's going. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. Well, the, the dungeon master has the hardest job of anyone, really, because while we as players sort of bounce off uh, the existing rules that we know about and we make decisions and so on, the dungeon master lays out this entire world and has a plot in mind, which can be completely blown off the rails by the players doing something crazy. So the dungeon master is is like is like like the uh, your narrator, isn't it? But it's not an omniscient narrator because they can actually go. Oh, hang on a minute. Yes, <laughs> you've gone over there. That's not what I thought you were going to exactly. do. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And and is it is it right that for a really satisfying game, staying true to your character might be more important than achieving the goal, which might be rescuing something or making or someone or making money or whatever? Is it? it it's is it about? Is it about character or plot or both, I suppose? It's definitely more about that than it, it is about, about 
winning anything because there is, you know, there is no prize. Like I said, there's no thing that you get to take home when your D&D campaign starts to draw to a close. All that there is is the ridiculous memory of this time you tried to put an alligator into a bottle and it exploded or something like that. Um, and you that, that's what you take home with you. That's it. Um, I think you and your group should publish your own appendix. <laughs> Perhaps we should. I think it'd be a, a very eclectic appendix, though. Um, we've got quite a few different kinds of writer in our group. We've got a, a game designer. We've got a lawyer. We've got a composer. There'd be all sorts in there. That sounds perfect. Um, can you can you tell us about the? Um, you had some inventive missiles that you were chucking at people. Yes, um, you said in your piece. Uh, I can't claim to have done that myself. That wasn't my genius, but the genius of my co-adventurer Seamus the Corker, a half elf wizard who likes a drink. Um, he has a spell called magic missiles where he fires these um well these magic missiles at an enemy and he's asked by the dungeon master each time what shape they ought to take uh, when he was asked uh, early last year what shape they ought to take he suggested a hard irish border uh, but more recently the missiles have resembled such entities as jordan peterson and a dry cough increasingly frightening so did he throw a dry cough at someone well you'd be scared wouldn't you <laughs> yes, I very much would. Very effective yes. move, as it happens. Also illegal, I have to say, I'm pretty sure. Well, we're not too concerned about the legality of it if we're firing magic missiles at people. And you've got a lawyer in your group. And so. we have, yes, that's right. <laughs> well, all, I just have to say, please don't try and put an alligator in a bottle, anyone who's listening to this, or do any of those things. <laughs> um, that maybe, you know, go and try, try a bit of D&D. Camille uh, or eggs I'm going to say Camille thank you very much for joining us and good luck on your next adventure not at all you too see you there (laughs) (laughs) bye that is all we have time for this week our thanks go to Claire Loudon and Camille Ralphs thank you for listening to this episode of the TLS podcast produced by Ben Mitchell we'll be back next week but for now from Lucy Dallas and from me goodbye Imperfect with Rachel Sylvester and Alice Thompson on Times Radio, a weekly series of in-depth interviews with high-profile figures examining how overcoming the challenges of their early lives shaped the people they've become. This week, the politician-turned-broadcaster Ed Balls talks candidly about his time in government, how he overcame the school bullies, and why he kept his lifelong stammer a secret. And I left thinking, I didn't know I was a coward. I thought I was not trying to put myself centre stage. I thought I was just trying to kind of not expose something about myself. But actually, I'm a coward. Past Imperfect with Rachel Sylvester and Alice Thompson. Ed Balls, in his own words, now available as a podcast. Listen on the Times Radio app or wherever you get your podcasts. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.